0: Welcome to Health Systems CIO's interview with Adam Zoller, Chief Information Security Officer at Providence. I'm Anthony Guerra, Founder and Editor-in-Chief. Adam, thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks, Anthony. appreciate being here.
0: All right. Looking forward to a fun chat. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your organization and your role?
1: Yeah, certainly. So uh, Providence is a hospital system out on the West Coast of the U.S. We operate on several in several states in the West Coast. We have uh, 53 hospitals and a thousand plus clinics, um, about one hundred twenty five thousand plus full time caregivers and then another hundred thousand plus non employee caregivers um, providing care to our patients. Um, My cybersecurity team rolls up to our chief information security or sorry, chief information officer who rolls up to the CEO Uh, The CIO is BJ Moore. And then under my team, uh, I have roughly 220 people um, performing security functions globally. So we're mostly a geographically distributed organization with some centers of gravity in the Seattle area, Portland, and Southern California. And then we have our global center in Hyderabad, India, that does um, some shift work for our security operations center, as well as some functions in governance risk compliance, um, identity and access management and um, some supporting functions in our office of the CISO. Very good. So big in a word. It's a big healthcare organization um, and, uh, you know, a fairly large security team to support that healthcare organization. But, you know, given the size and scope of what we deal with and the types of threats that are targeting the healthcare industry these days, we really need it.
0: Yeah, very good. All right. I want to start with an open-ended question and see what's on your mind. So. What are either some of the, the trends you're looking at or, or strategies you're working on? Just where's your head right now, either top thing or, or top couple of things that, are, that you're spending your time on as the CISO?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess a few things come to mind. Number one is our culture of security. And I mean, culture of security, not just um, within the cybersecurity organization, but um, broader than the cybersecurity organization, looking at the entire Providence Org. Um, Instilling security practices into our business um, practices, our business processes, instilling security mindset into our caregivers, because our caregivers truly are on the front lines of the cybersecurity battlefield. Um, They're the ones that are receiving phishing emails. They're the ones that are making decisions on what they click on, what they don't click on, um, interactions with our clinical device vendors, our clinical application vendors. They're making risk choices every day so informing them about security, training them on security and instilling security culture broader than just the security organization has been um, a real focus of ours this year. Another focus of ours has been on um, implementing or you know continuing the journey I should say toward a zero trust approach here at Providence. And when I say j- zero trust, you know a lot of people use the um, the term um, never trust always verify and basically what it is is it's identity centric security. Making sure that the people who enter our information ecosystem um, access things that they should have access to and don't access things that they shouldn't have access to, and um, treating identity as the new perimeter versus kind of the old mindset within security, um, which was, um, you know, have a hard perimeter and a soft interior, um, which doesn't really work anymore these days since our caregivers and really, you know, you look sector agnostic, um, our end users are traveling all around the world um, with um, portable devices. They're accessing information systems with their phone. So um, again, identity is the new perimeter. Um, That's a, that's a strong number two there is zero trust approach. Um, And then number three is becoming a a business enabler for, um, for the broader Providence organization. I want security to be a differentiating feature for why our patients seek care at Providence facilities. Um, It doesn't mean that security has to be front and center. But um, security and usability um, in the clinical workflow needs to be uh, definitely needs to be front and center for our clinicians. Um, so things like touchless authentication, we call it fr- frictionless authentication. When a clinician accesses an information system, they shouldn't have to sit there and take their PPE off and type in their username and password. That just doesn't work when you're trying to provide high-quality patient care. Um, so things like that.
0: Wow, that's a lot. That's great. That's a lot of good stuff. A lot of good stuff yeah. to dig in there. So, let's start digging. Sure. Um security culture. Uh when you talk about that, one of the things that comes to mind is who do you need to work with? I'm um, thinking marketing, um could be other people, but in your mind to instill a security culture, who are the key individuals that a CISO needs to work with?
1: Yeah, you know, certainly um Communications and marketing, making sure that when we do market, whether it's internal or external, um, that it contains um, security centric language or language that doesn't put us at odds with our security strategy. But really, it's the security leaders, uh, the people who make risk decisions and influence risk decisions at the executive level across provenance. So thinking our chief financial officers organization, our supply chain organization, um, human resources, um, IT uh, absolutely plays a role in that. Um, the legal office plays a role in that. Um, our chief risk officer plays a role in that, a significant role in that, from a risk compliance, from a privacy standpoint. Um, and the way that we govern that is we have a um, a governance body, um, an information protection committee, and you know as much as everyone loves to hate committees, um, I, it is pretty effective to get those people together on a periodic basis. Talk about the bodies of work that we're driving forward from a security standpoint, both tactical and really strategic kind of um, um, top-level bodies of work. And, um, you know, gain consensus, um, build alliance through that organization to drive these things forward. Because I can't, for example, implement a security um, control like multi-factor authentication across our ecosystem um, without um, letting HR know that that's happening because I may run afoul of some... um, uh, HR regulations for people who have disabilities to access systems, um, just as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, so I need consensus. I need people to be aware of the security changes that are coming. And I I found that by creating these governing bodies like this council, um, it's it's really made it a lot easier for me to drive security forward in Providence.
0: You had talked about working with HR. You talk about identity. Um, yeah. I had read recently, you know, there's there's lots of There's technologies out there that'll help you manage identity with the onboarding and offboarding of employees. Um, And I read someone talking recently about the importance of security working with HR to know when employees are being let go. Uh, That's got to be a very tight relationship. So those credentials can be uh, revoked and that access no longer there. What are your Mm -hmm. thoughts around that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, HR is a really tight partner of ours um, because as you mentioned, you know, when people join an organization, leave an organization, when they move roles, um, every single one of those HR actions has an identity element that's tied to it. Um, When they join the organization, we want to make sure they have their identity ready for them on day one. So they're productive on day one uh, in a secure fashion. Um, And what that means is that they have things like Office 365 available for them on day one. That they know their username and password, and they know the service desk phone number if they have issues with their username and password, that they've set up multi factor authentication before day one, so they know how to log in on day one and have access to the systems that they need access to. Um, When they leave the organization, we want to make sure that we revoke access to our information systems in a timely fashion, because if somebody leaves the organization and joins a competitor, for example, we don't want them to have access to our to our data, Um, and nor do we want them to have access to really any data, even if they didn't join a competitor, we don't want them to be able to log into our systems after they leave the organization for a number of reasons. And then think about uh, the use cases when people um, move roles, um, which happens all the time. Um, If I have a person who's in information technology that has what we call privileged access or, or heightened level of security access to our applications and systems, and they move to a role in finance where they don't need that heightened level of access, I don't want them clicking on potentially phishing emails with a heightened level of access Mm -hmm. or or security tool access or something like that. I don't want them um, performing their day, day job with that heightened level of access in their new role. And nor would it really be appropriate for them to say, you know, if they move from finance to HR to have access to financial information in their HR capacity, we need to ensure that separation of duties between functions in the organization
0: what's challenging about doing identity right? I mean, it's 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 yeah. easy to say, oh, this this is what we need to do. This makes yeah. sense. Identity's uh, the new perimeter. And if we shore this up, we're going to be in pretty good shape. But I've talked to other CISOs, and it's hard when you get into the granular level. Tell me why it's hard and maybe some ways to go about it that you think are, will work. That's yeah, it's very
1: Go ahead. Identity and access management in the health system, especially is very hard. And it's very hard, especially when you're in a health system that um, operates in some of the states that we operate within. Um, And we have to work around, um, for example, the foundation structure in California, where um, our physicians have to be non-employed, you know, uh, contractors, independent contractors per the state law. Um, It makes it really challenging to manage... um, you know what they should have access to, what they shouldn't have access to when they join, when they move, if they only access our systems, say once a quarter, you know, how do you, for example, um set appropriate timeouts on accounts and account deletions um, if a physician only comes in once a year or once every right. six months. And then we have people who um you know maybe they teach at our university part-time. So they have a university account and access with the University of Providence, but they also have um, they're a credentialed physician and they practice um medicine in one of our facilities. So they're a physician and they have access to EPIC. And then they also hold some other role. And kind of managing those accesses, managing those roles becomes very difficult. And as you can imagine, in a large organization, you can have some level of standardization on job families um, between regions. Um, um, you know, for example, different levels within my organization or different pillars within my organization, they have different accesses to different things. But there's a lot of um, um, personal tailoring um, for individual identities that goes on because I may need access to or I may have the same access, same role as somebody sitting next to me, but may need separate access, different access to different systems. So um, we try to automate as much as we can um, through um, some automation systems on the back end that tie. um, We're an Azure shop, a Microsoft Azure shop, so tying our Azure Active Directory to um, our other systems that people need access to. Um, we try to automate as much as possible and standardize as much as possible, but realistically, um, there's going to be some human element, um, to discern what accesses different people need access to on day one. And so I have a fairly substantial identity and access management operations function where I have humans that field tickets and they, they crank through those tickets and they make sure that people get access to what they need access to. And we so get that, a, lot, a lot of tickets, by the way. It's about 2,000 tickets a day. So it's not a small number.
0: Right. So there are many, many, many exceptions, right? We we build yeah. these families of permissions based on job descriptions. So at least we have a starting point. That's what you're assigned. Okay, mm-hmm. now now you put in a ticket for your exceptions and there's a lot of them, but that's just yeah. the way it has to go, right?
1: It really is. Yeah. And you can use data to make some of these decisions and, you know, be as targeted or tailored as you can be. But realistically, you're going to have to have some sort of a manual function to come through the exceptions and grant access to things that people need access to.
0: Right, right. So, uh, you know, what you were saying about you know, employee education and that every single uh, person with credentials has some level of access and every single individual is a possible point of risk. Sure. That they can click on the wrong thing. That's just really hard to fathom when you think about it. And and it just, it hit me, not that I've never thought about it, but it kind of hit me when you said it, that every single person with credentials on your network is a point of possible compromise.
1: Potentially, yeah. And they're also a strong ally for us in the security organization to point out issues. You know, we get a lot of user-reported issues, um, people that notice... um, um, things that need to be fixed. They they report it to the security team. So, yeah, they are every every person um, who has every identity, I should say. In every our identity, organization. yeah, every identity, and and therefore every person has um, some level of exposure and potentially introduces some risk into our organization. But they're also it's a double edged sword. They're also very strong allies. And I say, from a training, and education, and awareness perspective, let's make take full advantage of our caregiver population. Give them the tools that they need to be able to report issues um, when they see issues. Um, educate them on what what's right and what's wrong. You know, I, I've run across in my career a lot of times where, and this not necessarily at Providence, but at previous organizations as well, where people do things that are against policy, but they didn't know what the policy mm-hmm. was. So. Yep. I find that educating people on what right looks like is not only a strong deterrent for people who are setting out to do the wrong things, but it's also a strong enabler for people who want to do the right thing.
0: Mm-hmm. So identity is the big thing. Yeah. Um, and, and we have identities of human beings, and we also have identities of devices, correct? And we call Certainly. those en- endpoints, right? Yeah. So the identity, identity, um, the, the human beings can can make mistakes. There's a question of the credentials, which we already discussed. They yeah. get their credentials. We want to make sure they don't have more privileges than they're supposed to and that the privileges change as appropriate as they change through jobs and then revoke when they come off. So we want to manage that identity of the human beings. We have identities of devices, and, and that's a, another huge issue, mm-hmm. right, especially the medical devices. So is that a way that you think about things? Is it overall identities? And then we kind of split it down from there into buckets?
1: Well, identity-centric security, certainly, yeah. Um, as a as a practice or as a as, a, as an approach, um, as the core of zero trust, really. But um, from a device or a machine account perspective, or an automated account perspective, we call them service accounts. Okay. Um, managing the the accounts that don't necessarily have a human tied to them, but they perform important tasks throughout our environment. Um, just important as managing the human identities. In fact, in some cases, more important because they may have elevated level of privilege to do whatever task they're they're doing, say it's a, a privileged um, service account that runs a script on a periodic basis to pull sensitive data from one system out and do some calculations and then upload the results into another system or transfer the results into another system. That, that account's always sitting there with that level of privilege, um, um, potentially readily accessible by a threat actor at any point in time. So um, the approach that we take to secure those accounts is um, we call it password vaulting, password rotation. So you can, you can uh, use technologies that are available commercially to um, what's called vault those credentials um, and make it so it's only usable by the systems that should be using it for the specific task that it should be used for. And then it's incredibly difficult to change the passwords on service accounts because you can imagine you can write software, write code around a specific service account to do a specific task. And then you may have to actually update the code to get the service account password to change or Mm. password changed. Or if you change the password on the service account, it breaks the code. And then all of a sudden the business process is broken. So it's all these things are interconnected. These systems, um, this particular technology we're using internally um, will allow us to vault the credential, but also rotate the password, change the password on a periodic basis Without breaking the business process associated with it. And there's a number of technologies that do this out on the market um, without naming any specific technologies. There's a number that do that. But um, yeah, password vaulting, password rotation, absolutely critical to a zero trust approach.
0: Now, are medical devices included in that bucket of service accounts or is that another bucket?
1: No, certainly. Yeah. Medical Mm -hmm. devices use service accounts. There's human accounts and non-human accounts, really two basic types. Mm -hmm. Um, And clinical devices and clinical applications could use a combination of both service accounts to say, apply patches on the clinical device or transfer data between the device and an application. Um, Or you could also have human accounts that are logged into the clinical device um, to do um, remote service or um, any number of things.
0: There's a tremendous amount of talk around the security on these medical devices. Is this something that is top of mind and an issue that you're you're
1: involved in as well? It absolutely is. Clinical device cybersecurity is one of the um, one of the issue areas that not a lot keeps me up at night. But this this is the potential to um, you know really cause some scary outcomes if you think about it. And we have a tremendous as a as a sector, uh, the healthcare sector has a tremendous reliance on third parties. Um, to provide us with secure clinical devices and the ability to keep those devices secure and patched, updated on current operating systems. And oftentimes these devices are fully managed by vendors, third parties, um, for a number of reasons. Um, and they're certified by the FDA, and there's a number of checks and balances they have to go through. Um, but what we find, or what I what I found, is that you know these devices they're designed to be in. Um, deployed within hospital systems for up to 15 years. But if you think of a commercial operating system like Windows, for example, it's only designed to be within its life cycle for about five to seven years, maybe 10 years if you stretch it and you, you pay extra for, for additional security patching. Um, so there's there's automatically going to be um, a gap there where you have a device that's designed to be in your system for 15, and then the OS is you know for seven to 10. Um, So, managing that is incredibly important for hospital systems to think about. And what we're doing at Providence is we we use a couple technologies to not only fingerprint the clinical devices throughout our ecosystem, but um, to detect vulnerabilities on those devices. And then we're proactively going out and working with those third parties to make sure they're patching those um, clinical devices in a timely fashion. But it's challenging. It's a really challenging um, problem to solve. You you think about hundreds of clinical device manufacturers and vendors just at Providence alone, thousands globally, I'm sure. Um, And every single one of these devices has their own unique software bill of materials that that it comes with. And uh, to be completely frank, a lot of these clinical devices made by those manufacturers weren't really designed with security in mind, you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago. So I think there's a lot of work to be done in clinical device security. Some of it's going to come as a result of legislation and mm-hmm. regulation. Um, and and the rest is going to be, I think, driven by the customers, which is the healthcare systems, which are demanding, like Providence, we're demanding secure clinical devices and the ability to secure those clinical devices with modern security measures.
0: Do you, do you, th- are you going to try and, and retire these devices maybe sooner than you would have because they present a higher risk? So, okay, we know it's it, it's got a longer shelf life, not counting the security problem, the device in, in and of itself. It was very expensive. Um, it could last a lot longer, but um, you know there's some risks there. And I know you talked about different ways of managing it. You didn't mention network segmentation, which I assume is another thing you sort of... It is. Isolating it, which I hear is not easy. That's not the best solution in the world either. I mean... Uh, So um, what are your thoughts there? Will some of this stuff be retired earlier than it might be and you'll take the financial hit?
1: Some of it will, realistically. Um, For example, if there's a device that's FDA certified and it can only run on Windows 7, well, Windows 7 has been end of life by Microsoft and they're not going to provide security patches forever on Windows 7. Um, So realistically, if we can't use that device. If it's, if it has security vulnerabilities and we don't feel comfortable running that device, depending on what it's being used for. And if we can virtually isolate it or not, we will retire it. Um, and we will, we will replace it for a more secure device. Um, depending on again, if the, the if the device touches a patient, the types of procedures that it performs, um, we have a, a risk ranking system that we apply to the devices, depending on what they're used for. And, um, And and we replace those devices. We lifecycle those devices based on that. And we also prioritize patching on devices based on that risk ranking system. But to your uh, previous point on on virtual isolation, we're taking that approach as well. Um, The technology that we use to fingerprint detect vulnerabilities on the devices, we can also use that technology. We are also using that technology to propose um, virtual isolation measures, um, access control lists and apply those access control lists to the devices um, using another technology that's um, in our core backbone for our network. Um, But to your point, it's not easy to to do that um, at scale because every device is different, every facility is different, Um, and as much as you'd like to have standardization across your facilities, doing it at 53 hospitals and 1,000 clinics is very, very difficult.
0: And you can't even find them half the time, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we can find them. Um and we have hundreds of thousands of clinical devices and you know we find all the devices um the challenge sometimes is uh is is working with the third parties and getting them to adopt modern security practices to be completely honest
0: has has this changed the buying process of medical devices and it's interesting yeah. uh because the the regulatory mood is changing there are things coming out from the FDA they're they're going to require a, a software bill of materials so things are changing quickly um, but I would imagine just like third-party apps, um, there's a whole new process for purchasing medical devices that I assume includes security on the front end and your team. So um, how has the buying process changed? Knowing what we know now, what what the industry is going through, how has it changed the buying process for medical devices?
1: And I think that's the key. You hit it, which is... You want to fix what's already in your environment, but you can't let anything insecure into your environment while you're going back and fixing the sins of the past. Um, And um, so, yeah, to your point, the buying process has changed dramatically, um, both in the language that we use in our contracts, which include in our business associate agreement, um, terms around cybersecurity measures that our third parties need to conform to, um, and then also the specific contracts that we negotiate with our third party clinical device vendors, which include provisions like if you sell us a clinical device, it needs to be patched and state and, and current and updated through the life cycle of that device to the point earlier on operating systems being live for seven to 10 years, roughly. And then the device being live for 15 years. Well, I don't want to buy that device. If you're not going to upgrade it through the device, through the life cycle of that device, because you can't say that it's good for 15 years. If the <laughs> operating system is only good for seven, that doesn't make any sense. So anyway, so to your, to your point, that's going in the contract and that's being negotiated up front now. So Um, and I think, you know, talking to my peers across the industry, I don't think I know talking to my peers, the CISOs across the industry, they're doing the same thing. They're working with their legal shop, their supply chain organization, um, to make sure that security provisions are baked in at the front, um, to make sure that their expectations are understood before they, they buy a clinical device. And I'll say the clinical, the major clinical device vendors are taking this seriously and they're willing to work with us. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's going to be a journey getting to a secure state, a completely um, secure state across the industry.
0: Yeah, it sure is. Yeah. I think you'll uh, have plenty of demand for employment for the
1: next however many years you want to work. I've been trying uh, to work myself out of a job for 15 plus years. So uh, there, yeah.
0: there are lots of bad guys out there trying to make sure you stay employed.
1: Right. <laughs> Fortunately,
0: um, you mentioned. um before about doing something and breaking something, right? Doing something on a security front. I think it was the password of the service, service accounts, and you break a process. Um, I had interviewed someone recently where they talked about complexity is the enemy of the CISO, probably the enemy of the CIO too, a complex environment. And what people are trying to do is to stay within the suite of a, a smaller suite of products right? Best of suite, we used to call it. Uh, you know, People would do best of breed, and then they realized that oh, we want data to move around. So now they do best of suite. Let's have a couple of core strategic vendors, and let's look at them first before we go outside so we don't have a billion applications here. Um, what are your thoughts on that, about the, the CISOs getting more involved in the process of application rationalization and bring being brought into those discussions and trying to keep that ecosystem tighter for better security.
1: Yeah. I'm at Providence blessed to work for a CIO and a CEO who are big believers in simplification um, and keeping things modern, both from a security standpoint, but also from an end user, um, you know, usability standpoint. Um And within that simplification play is, uh, to your point, it's standardization around security configuration, it's standardization around process. It also makes our caregivers' lives so much easier when they know what's an approved device or an approved protocol already. And they can go out and procure a capability that they know isn't going to have to go through a huge level of security scrutiny or another architectural review that's going to take weeks or months or whatever. Um, it's It's a big enabler for our caregivers. So um, I would agree that the complexity can create some serious issues. Um, realistically, though, working in a hospital system, you're going to have to deal with some level of complexity. So the question is, as a CISO, um, how do you scale your capabilities, scale your processes to you know, leverage the scale of the business and not try to necessarily centralize everything to the point where you're acting as a roadblock to everybody? Um, so relying on vendors, for example, to provide accurate architectural diagrams up front to us so that we can just review their architectural diagrams and not have to create them as a result of a new device being onboarded um, just as one example. But um, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, complexity makes things hard. Um, simplification is the way to go both, both from a cost and usability standpoint, but also a security standpoint. Uh,
0: the, the idea of uh, apps having to go through security is fairly new. Um, And people are trying to get their arms around it. Um, Mm -hmm. And I know that for some people, it's very difficult. The volume is tremendous. Uh, If you work for a large organization, you could have a tremendous volume of requests coming in from the business um, of apps they want to get or or technologies they want to use or they want to buy. And everyone needs it. And it's the best thing. And we need this. And you're getting possibly bombarded with Lots and lots and lots of requests. You want to manage those in a timely fashion so that yeah. you're not seen as that bottleneck. It's not that black hole where, you know, that's where, you, where your request goes to die. <laughs> right. So, <Yeah. laughs> how do you handle that? Because if you can't slow the volume of requests, you can only manage the output. How do you not take? I've heard two weeks people are trying to promise, CISOs are trying to promise, hey, listen get uh, i'll give you some kind of evaluation in 2 weeks yeah uh, so i don't know what your thoughts are on that but how can you see a world where people are getting eaten up by this process and um what's your best advice on managing it
1: i can see why it would be a problem um the way that we manage it though is a little bit different i think than a lot of security organizations who just like you said they become the recipient mm-hmm. of this giant fire hose of yeah. requests coming in from the business um, what we do at Providence is um, we've centralized um, all of our security functions our IT functions including end user technical support um, including um, the people that are at the elbow with the clinicians in the facilities including our um, biomedical engineering teams we've centralized all of those within the chief information officers organization so my peers within the organization own all those functions. So educating them and, and working with them, partnering with them on um, what an approved device configuration looks like, um, what our security policies are and security processes are, and how to expedite those requests that come through has been a, a game changer for us. The other piece is they know that the clinicians want these capabilities, but instead of having a conversation with them about or being a recipient from people in the facilities about, hey, I want this app or I want this yeah. device. The conversation has become um, has evolved to, um, I want a capability. Here's the capability I want. And then because we've centralized everything under the CIO's organization, we can reach back, our, our people that are at the elbow can reach back and say, do we already have an app that's approved, gone through a security assessment already that fits this capability? And maybe it's not the one that the clinician wanted necessarily mm-hmm. or, or saw, but it gives them the capability that they need. And they don't have to... It, they don't have to go through any security review whatsoever. It's just a matter of provisioning access. Um, but it, look, the volume of third-party security requests is very real. We do hundreds of those per year, um, and and it's cumbersome. It's dozens of questions uh, that have to be answered up front, and then likely an architectural review um, that follows um, from security architects. And getting accurate security architecture diagrams is a challenge. Getting accurate answers to the questionnaire is a challenge, um, and then going back and Fielding exceptions that need to be managed as a result of those third-party risk assessments is a challenge. Um, it all adds latency to the process that, frankly, when you're providing patient care, you don't have time for. Um, so I, I feel the pain of our <laughs> clinicians, the people that provide care. On the other hand, um, it's just not acceptable to um, introduce security risk into our environment without at least understanding it and putting some mitigating factors in place. So, yeah, it's a challenge.
0: Well, last question because we're we're about out of time, but um, one of the complaints that comes from the requester in this case is a lack of visibility mm-hmm. into what where it sits, right? Where does it sit in the evaluation? Um, so I don't know if you have any thoughts around that, but it seems like um, transparency would help if there was some kind of dashboard where they could see, oh, it's sitting here or it's stuck in legal. Because sometimes it's not stuck yeah. in security. Um, and that's probably not your problem. but. Um, you know, there, there's connections there. There's, well, it's a contract issue. Well, it's got to go to legal and then, okay, it's been approved, but now there's security saw something and the contract security says, you got to put this in the contract. Now it's got to go back to legal. It's all over the place. And the, the requester doesn't know what's going on unless I guess they're constantly told, I don't know. Is this a real problem? It is a real problem. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard this pain from people on the ground. Um, you know, again, we're blessed to have all of our people that are at the elbow and and within our facilities that perform IT functions and related functions in the same organization. So, from a tracking within like contracting, supply chain, legal, like tracking that perspective, they're all well versed on that and they know who to talk to to get a status update from legal, for example, or from supply chain. Um, ideally, you could track this stuff centrally in one location, but I haven't seen that done. You know, in the in a in a Um, seamless fashion, um, really anywhere. Um, But I would say um, from a security standpoint, um, the pain point that I hear oftentimes is because security architecture teams don't oftentimes sit within the governance, risk, and compliance organization. And the GRC, if if you will, GRC organization performs third-party risk assessments. So you have these two assessments that need to be done within cybersecurity to pass the cybersecurity checkbox. And the frustration point that had been brought up to my team in the past was well, we did a security review and it passed. So why can't we go live? And they didn't realize well, it passed third party risk, but it didn't do a security architecture review. So it's exactly kind of what you're talking about, which is, you know, people don't know the status. So what we've done within cybersecurity specifically is instituted, and my team's going to hate me for this. I know there's another name for it, but I still (laughs) call it one intake process. So um, a requester can submit a request to the security team. Um, it comes through one centralized intake. And then they have tracking through um, some of our tools that we use mm-hmm. for request tracking. Um, they have tracking for the status of that particular request through the security third-party risk review, through the architecture review, and they know who's fielding it, what the status is, um, when they can expect it back, um, all in real time. So that's just within the security organization, though. So that doesn't solve the you know coordinating with legal and supply chain and whatnot, but at least I would say the people on the ground within our organization know who to talk to to get that done.
0: Okay. Very good. Definitely another challenge. Um, Adam, I'm going to give you, you, know what? I'm going to give you a chance for a final thought, uh, best piece of advice based on your experience for someone, and there aren't that many, in a comparable sized health system in your position. So one of your five, six, seven, maybe up to 10 peers out there, your best piece of advice for them, then I'll let you go.
1: Yeah, look, we're in a, uh, my friends that are in these positions, they're... Um, it's a tough position to be in, but I'll say, um, you know, ransomware is scary. These attacks that we're facing are very scary. Um, the threat is very real, but um, where I've seen people get the most bang for the buck is just doing the basics. Well, hmm. um, investing in patching, investing in asset inventories, building strong advocates and allies within the business, understanding the business and speaking and communicating in terms of business outcomes, and then building allies and then gaining traction with People who accept and make risk decisions in the organization. Um, I mentioned that we have some um, councils that we stood up, but also gaining allies. Like you know, at Providence again, I'm blessed to have a board that's very supportive, a CEO, a CIO that's very supportive. Having those supportive individuals in those or in those places of power makes your life so much easier. So I'd say build alliances, make friends, and do the basics well, and then you know you'll be dealing with just the small sliver of remaining outliers from there.
0: Adam, thanks so much for your time today. That was a great talk.
1: Thanks, Anthony. Appreciate the time.